Welcome to a special emergency style edition of Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm in the Score Studios, as always, with my co-host, Joe Wolfon. What's going on, man? Glad you could make it. Yeah, that's... A lot's going on. Uh, We're currently getting company emails about the Halloween costume contest that's about to go down. Unfortunately, we are not taking part in that because we are in the studio, as I mentioned, for this emergency edition. You know, we usually pod about once a week, but given the content king that the NBA is, there are always these random nights throughout the season where so much happens that we just need to get in the studio and and bang out, even if it's just a quick half hour. And Wednesday night in the NBA qualified as one of those insane nights. You had, for one, unfortunately, Steph Curry suffering a broken left hand. We'll talk about that and what it means for the Warriors season. (coughs) It's over. We, of course, are going to talk about the absolutely ruthless social media feud that erupted between Carl Anthony Towns and Joel Embiid after Carl Anthony Towns and Joel Embiid straight up kind of fought. I don't know if I want to call it a fight. Like, neither one connected yeah, the, with The aftermath punch. was far more savage than the fisticuffs right. themselves. Yeah, because the fisticuffs didn't really include any closed fist landing punches. It was a couple of headlocks and then Ben Simmons getting in there to tap Cat out in a in like a stranglehold on the ground. Um, but let, let's get to all of it. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Curry? You like get the bad news out of the way first, get the sad stuff out of the way, and then get to the funny stuff, or you want to start with Cat and Embiid? I think we should start with Steph. I just think All that's right. the bigger news and the one with obviously wider ranging so, implications. So Steph Curry has this scary fall, comes crashing down to the Chase Center court last night, suffers a broken second metacarpal yeah. on his left hand. Based on every Google search I could find, stories that we've done at the score, just on like athletes that have suffered this injury in the last three years, I was going back. I found a bunch of them in basketball, baseball, football. The standard timeline after this injury is almost always four to six weeks. I've seen some that are six to eight and eight to ten if like surgery is involved. Well, yeah, so he's getting the CAT scan today and, and waiting to see basically if he needs to have the surgery, which will dictate what his timeline actually is. But, but even optimistically, it looks like we're looking at four to six weeks. Yeah, and it, it's not his shooting hand, so uh, maybe that makes the timeline a little bit more compressed um, because you know he can come back and basically dribble the ball and shoot it okay because it's not his dominant hand. Obviously, you still need both hands in order to effectively play basketball, but I feel like the fact that it's his offhand might make it a little bit shorter recovery time. Well, here's the deal. Let's say he's out three or four weeks, like, I don't know, a month-ish. I was going through it last night. The first four weeks of November, the Warriors play the Spurs. They're in Dallas. They play Utah twice. We don't have to mince words. Like, this is the end of their playoff they're hopes. Yeah. They're, they're not going to make the playoffs. And I think it was trending in that direction anyway. Like, I right. wrote about this a couple of days ago, even after that win in New Orleans. I mean, we talked about this on our podcast just two days ago. So uh, it's not even like we really need to rehash it, but... The team was all sorts of discombobulated and so talent-strapped, so defensively deficient. And even with Steph out there, they were just not generating quality offense. And in order for them to stay afloat and stay within spitting distance of the playoff picture in the West, their offense needed to be elite because they were that bad defensively. And it just wasn't working because there weren't enough threats on the court. And Steph was getting double and triple teamed. And... He wasn't finding his way to open looks. So 
I don't know if they were going to make the playoffs anyway, but like you know, without Steph for this extended period of time now, I think that pretty much sinks them. So yeah, they're one in three, and he's going to miss probably about fifteen games or more in a Western Conference where it's going to take probably at least forty five minutes to make the playoffs. Yeah, they're done, and you know, I, I wrote a quick thing about this this morning, and just it's. I, it, look, it shouldn't be that surprising that a team that loses its best player is kind of, you know, done. But given that we're used and the Warriors are used to playing deep into June and having these, like, superstar casts, it is pretty crazy that now your best player's out probably four to six weeks. It's only the last day of October and we're already declaring the season over. But that, again, speaks to, how A, how bad they've already looked. Um, and just how thin this roster is, right? Like, I, again, we don't have to rehash it, but there's not enough NBA talent on this roster, and there might not have been even with Curry. Like, forget the good teams are going to play without Curry. Like, I, I think they're going to be hard-pressed to win games, period, regardless of who the opposition is. Yeah, like, let's say, hypothetically, they just played out the rest of the season and Curry didn't come back. How many games do you think this team wins? I think less than 20. I think less than 15. Wow. Yeah, no, it's entirely possible. Like They, they are terrible. Yeah, and, and I mean, they've been terrible with Steph on the court, and he's really the only guy who's actually capable of drawing two guys to the ball. Like, without him out there, I don't think a defense is panicking about D'Angelo Russell coming around a screen. You know what I'm saying? Like They're not going to be blitzing him. Like They can play pick and rolls with D'Angelo pretty much straight up. He might work his way into floater range and hit a few. Like He's solid at doing that. He's a good passer. He can create, but like, like who on that team is giving a defense any kind of fear whatsoever? Uh, it's just not a soul, not and, a soul. And we've talked about how poor they are defensively. So I mean, that to me looks like a twelve-win team. I don't, I don't know how much better they would actually be than that. Yeah, no, I, I hear you, and I completely agree with you. And like, I was trying to think yesterday, like, what's their starting lineup going to be now? So okay, they've got Willie Cauley Stein back. And so maybe they don't start small anymore. Maybe they start a, a traditional center. But it, it's probably looking like their starting lineup is going to be, obviously, Russell and Draymond. And then probably three of the following four players. Cauley Stein, Alec Burks, Glenn Robinson III, and Eric Pascal. Uh, Pascal's looked pretty nice. I mean, for a rookie. Like, I sure. actually... I can't believe I'm saying this. I think He's been their third best player. I guess fourth best player. Like, maybe D'Angelo's been better than him. But, like... D'Angelo's been pretty bad. Yeah. And quite honestly, every game, it seems like his defense gets worse. Like, I, I, I watched a bunch of Nets games last year, and I knew he wasn't a particularly good defender. But either he's regressed, or I just wasn't paying close enough attention last year because he he truly looks like one of the worst defenders in the league. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be ugly. And, you know, we were just talking off-air about this Uh we, we were sort of speculating about whether this would finally force Steve Kerr to adjust his offensive system and just simplify things and run a lot more middle pick and roll. I guess we'll see if that actually happens. I mean, that guy has been devoutly committed to his process and his system and his principles, but I, they just don't have the personnel to run that system right now. And D'Angelo at least is like a solid pick and roll operator. Like I said, I, he is a very good passer and you know, once he can work his way sort of into the mid-range, he can hit those floaters, he can pull up. 
I just I don't know how they can carve out anything resembling a functional offense without just you know spamming the D'Angelo Draymond pick and roll like that's really all they have at this point. Yeah, completely. I, I think I think if they just want to look like even uh, like a semblance of a functioning NBA team on the offensive end, they need to go all in on that route now. They need to transition to a more pick and roll heavy offense centered around D'Angelo Russell and I guess Draymond Green. And, and just see what it brings you. And it, it's probably still not going to be good enough because, again, there's just not enough talent scoring-wise outside of those guys. But, I mean, you've got nothing to lose. You might as well try it. Like Steve Kerr's motion kind of read-and-react offense is beautiful when you've got the right personnel. But this, this is an NBA personnel. That's not going to work anymore. And there, You know, you need basketball IQ to run that kind of read-and-react offense too. And this team doesn't have it anymore. And this, to me, goes back... Last thing I'll mention now about the Warriors is... This goes back to something I was mentioning the day the D'Angelo Russell deal went down. And I was kind of floored by it. And I know a lot of people at the time were arguing with me and saying, well, like, it doesn't matter the money they gave them or the fact they, you know, they gave up a protected future first and Iguodala to get them because they can just flip them later... And if he's playing well enough that, like, they can trade him, that's good anyway. But, like, my argument at the time was this. If you're signing D'Angelo Russell to keep him, then I think you've overpaid for him because you're the Golden State Warriors. You know what true max money talent looks like, and D'Angelo Russell ain't it. Well, they didn't just pay for him in dollars. Exactly, and that's what I'm saying. And then if... Yeah, I mean, they flipped a top 20 protected pick that obviously now is not going to convey, but they flipped that pick, and then they had to... Part Get with, rid of Iguodala, exactly. along with the 2024 first-round pick that, based on the way things are headed, yeah. could I be think a it's like really... top three or four protected, but still. That could be a really juicy protected. pick yeah. for Memphis. And so, so that was what, that's what I was saying at the time. Like it, it just didn't seem necessary, if, even if you wanted D'Angelo Russell in your plans. And if you didn't, and you were just acquiring him for the sake of, well, come December 15th, we'll be able to turn him into something else, like... Again, I, I was like, man, that's putting a lot of trust in D'Angelo Russell looking like the max player you've paid him to be over those first few months. And as you mentioned, people really, I don't think, have been paying attention to Russell individually because they've been just looking at how bad the Warriors have been overall. D'Lo's been trash to start the season. And that's not hyperbole. He's been terrible offensively. Um, and he's been even worse defensively. He's looked like one of the worst defensive players in the league on the worst defensive team in the league. I'm not saying he can't turn it around over the next few months. I think that's now even harder to do with Curry out of the lineup. But, like, say Russell's only a little better than this over the next few months. I Like, do you think there's teams banging the door down to give up a ton of assets to, tri- like, pay D'Angelo Russell max money? I think there probably will be one or two, but I don't think there's going to be this bidding war that, you know, all of a sudden going to set the Warriors on this future course because they've netted some great package of players and assets for D'Angelo Russell. Like, I just think in the end, this is going to be a risk that did not pay off for the Warriors. Yeah, I mean, the best case scenario for them at this point, I think, is he plays well enough or at least just puts up the individual stats that get another team interested uh, and there are basically a couple of teams that I continuously throw out as trade targets because there aren't that many that make sense. But, uh, you know, the ones that do make sense, the ones that really do need an upgrade at point guard and maybe have a glut of depth at a different position that might benefit the Warriors are the Magic and the Timberwolves. Um, I don't know. Can you think of any others? 
No, not really. Like, and, and like if I'm the Warriors, the guys I'm targeting are Gordon uh, from the Magic. Who who knows if the Magic would do that at this point? Yeah. I mean, Gordon's not off to a great start himself this season. I just think he's in a situation where he's not necessarily being optimized because of the log jam in the front court. I feel like he's maybe playing a little bit out of position at the three and just isn't necessarily going to have a chance to spread his wings in that situation because, I mean, there's just not a ton of space to operate with. There's not enough shooting there. And he's he's sort of blocked at his best position by Jonathan Isaac and then all the centers that are there that prevent Isaac from bumping up to the five. So, he, you know, that might be a trade that could benefit both teams. Um but again, I just, like if, if these teams are, are watching these games and seeing what, what Russell looks like. Now, Russell is also in a situation where I don't think he's being optimized. And this was a concern I had. You know, we talked about it before the season started. Like, if they wanted to use him as trade bait, it was going to be difficult because he wasn't necessarily going to be put in a position to succeed, at least to the fullest extent of his talent. And, um, and now we've got to wait and see. You know, whether with, without Steph there and the keys basically just in D'Angelo's hands... You know, he's got the wheel now. Let's see what he can do. Um, and maybe he plays well enough that they actually do want to keep him. Uh, maybe he plays just well enough that he becomes a tantalizing enough trade piece that they can get something back for him, and that's the route they decide to go. Uh, I, I could see it going in either direction at this point, but one thing I feel very confident in is that this Warriors team is going to be really, really bad. Yeah. And um, another thing we were talking about off-air was, you know, we were just texting back and forth last night after we found out that Steph's hand was broken just sort of comparing the situation to the 97 Spurs when uh, David Robinson went out and maybe could have come back at some point that season, but they decided to just sit him for the season so they would tank, end up getting the number one pick and getting Tim Duncan and obviously launching right. a, a two-decade-long run. Of- My response to you texting about that was, unfortunately, there's no Tim Duncan in the 2020 NBA draft. Right. Um, well, who, Anthony Edwards is the guy I think that everyone's sort of high on, right? Edwards or, or uh, RJ something Hampton? Or LaMelo Ball. <laughs> I don't know if the Warriors are looking at any of those guys as like a franchise savior, but they also don't need a franchise savior, right? Because, you know, assuming that Clay comes back, whether it's the end of this year or just the start of next year, you know, in something resembling the form that he was in before he got injured, and maybe Draymond takes it easy for the rest of this year so he can rest up and come back rejuvenated next year and Steph the same thing. You know, they still have the bones in place of a championship contender. So it's not like they need a franchise guy now. It would be nice to have a guy that they could groom to maybe take up the torch when those guys finally do age out. I don't know. I don't know if that guy exists in this coming draft, but this might not work out too badly for the Warriors, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, I know this isn't a draft podcast, but yeah, RJ Hampton was the guy I'm thinking of. Uh, then there's also Anthony Edwards and Lamelo Ball, who you mentioned, James Wiseman and Cole Anthony. I actually saw Cole Anthony play a high school game when I was in Charlotte for All Star Weekend. That's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> and he looked a lot better than other high school players. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe he can rescue the Warriors. I mean, a couple of things we can say just to sort of cap this off. One, it's just insane how quickly this whole thing fell apart for Golden State. Right, like, can you remember a more precipitous fall off? For first of all, you'd have to have a team that was that dynastic to begin with. I mean, I guess the Bulls, right? right the Bulls the, the 98, 99 Bulls, like in yeah. that lockout shortened season right. after. But but that was a team that lost Michael freaking Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, and Phil Jackson all in one off season. The Warriors obviously had a bad off season in losing Kevin Durant and knowing Clay Thompson was going to be hurt. But still, like, they didn't lose. 
the overall star power and and talent that th- those Bulls did, right? Like, not even close. Well, they did lose those guys. It just, they lost them in different ways. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, true. Because now you could say that in the last five months, they lost Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, and Steph Curry, which, yeah. in terms of three guys to lose in a few months is as bad as it gets in NBA history. Yeah. They and just I mean, haven't it, lost Steve Curry. <laughs> in in term, like temporally speaking, it was a few months, but in NBA gameplay Six terms, games. Yeah, exactly. And it, if that even, it was, you know, they lose Durant in game five. Yeah, they been, lose Clay in game six and they lose, yeah, I guess six games. Yeah. You're right. That's insane. They lost three transcendent superstars in <laughs> Three Hall games. of Famers. Yeah. Man, it, it, it's just, it's crazy and, you know, Obviously, Schadenfreude is playing a big part in this, and I think there are a lot of people who are relishing the fact that the Warriors have been brought this low. I'm not. Like, as much as I didn't love the Durant-era Warriors just because I think it made the league less interesting, I I still don't love watching, you know, Draymond have to toil away on a bad team. I think that's just such a waste of his talents. I felt bad for Steph just sort of running around and, and, and seeing all the bodies that he was seeing and not really being able to do anything about it. It saddened me. It really did. And I was looking forward to this season in large part just because I wanted to see what those guys could do and you know whether they could put the pedal to the metal and, and do enough to carry this team to the playoffs. I was excited to watch that. And obviously it didn't happen the way that I expected and probably wasn't going to even if Steph stayed healthy. But I mean, it just feels like after... All the good luck that it took for them to put that team together, it almost feels like they're paying the piper now. And I don't necessarily believe in karma or that things sort of always even out in the end, but man, it, it sure seems like that's what's happening to the Warriors right now. Look, we've we've spoken so many times over the last year about how fast the NBA now moves, right? Like I've said it a ton when I tell a fan base not to just assume like a superstar is going to be there for X amount of years because things just change too quickly. Like, you know, I was saying when the Clippers got Paul George and Kawhi, and everyone was like, wow, they're just going to stay there now. It's their home, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, do you know how long two years is in the NBA? Like, I'm not convinced both of those guys are staying long-term. So taking all that into account, we're talking about a five-year run where a team went to the finals every single year, won three chips, had a 73-9 and nine record in there, added a, a plethora about the, of all-star appearances, yeah. two MVPs, signed Kevin Durant, like... The amount they accomplished in five years, and five years in the modern NBA is a freaking eternity. So, yeah, this is kind of paying the piper for that. And I guess, you know, look, there's always a, a downside, I suppose, to to building a super team. Um, and, you know, the Spurs are the great anomaly. They managed to somehow extend their window through two decades. And that required an enormous amount of luck on their part. You know, it was lucky that they got the number one pick when they did, that they managed to get Tim Duncan that one season when Robinson happened to get hurt and they happened to tank. And then they hit the jackpot with Kawhi Leonard. And I'm not saying, you know, the Spurs player development incubator didn't have anything to do with that. But look, it takes luck to build these teams. And, you know, sometimes it takes bad luck for it to fall apart. And the Warriors have been hit with a rash of bad luck. And, you know, they're, they're dealing with the fallout now. And, and it's insane, not just because of how bad they are, but because they have no wiggle room. Like, maybe they can apply for a hardship exception. I don't know if they're going to be granted it because obviously Curry's only going to be out for, like you said, four to six weeks. 
so I don't, I, you know, in the meantime, I think they're just stuck with the roster they have. And uh, it, it's not going to get any prettier than it's been. Um, can I just ask you one more thing about, so of course Steph got hurt when he drove the lane and, and Aaron Baines tried to sell a charge call. It was minimal contact yeah. and Aaron Baines, maybe like twice as heavy as Steph Curry is, tries to sell the foul, falls backwards, and he landed on Curry's hand. That's how he got hurt. Are you on team ban the charge at this point? No. No? No. I still think it's an exciting play that is ingrained in the spirit of basketball. And, uh, you know, do I wish it could, con- like, it, it can exist without the threat of catastrophic injuries? Of course. But... I don't think it can, and I, I don't think I don't think the injuries are happening often enough that we should actually consider removing it. Like, I get it that it is a yeah. dangerous play. So, but also how careless LeVert got hurt last year. No, I know. I, again, it is a careless play. Sorry, it is a, uh, <laughs> a careless play. <laughs> a careless play? It's, uh, it can be a dangerous play, like 100%, but... Yeah. Or maybe he got hurt on a chase down block. I don't remember. But, but, but that's what I was going to say. What I was going to say is there are so many plays in basketball that, like... Hell, going up for a dunk in traffic is, I mean, as dangerous as it gets, right? Like it's yeah, but th- there's a difference in that those are basketball plays. I know that's a, a is pretty trying bro- to take a charge, not a basketball play. Like, well, it's become a basketball play, but I guess it doesn't necessarily need to be. I mean, I, I think you don't have to ban guys taking charges altogether, but maybe you can just change how you actually police that rule. Like if a guy slides underneath a player while they're airborne to take that charge, I, like that should be an immediate flagrant foul in my opinion. See that? I agree with That's fine. I, I think you can do things like that. I think you can like disincentivize going above and beyond to like draw and or sell that call. Yeah. I think maybe there are just ways to disincentivize the way that guys are doing it now. Agreed. That makes it a little bit safer. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. All right, let's get to the fun stuff. Because before the Curry thing even happened, I was already considering wanting to jump in the studio and talk about just Joel Embiid and Carl Anthony Towns all together. So you remember last year, one of Joel Embiid's favorite targets was Carl Anthony Towns. We literally made reference less than a week ago on this podcast about the fact that Carl Anthony 48 Towns hours ago. started trying on defense after Joel Embiid called him out for his soft defense. They finally meet again, first week of their second week of the season, last night. We don't know what kind of trash talk was going on, probably a lot. Carl Anthony Towns at one point kind of snaps. They start shoving. Towns puts Embiid in a headlock. They wrestle to the floor. Ben Simmons and basically everyone from both teams jumps in. At one point, Simmons has Carl Anthony Towns in a straight-up chokehold on the ground. Embiid and Cat get ejected, but not before Embiid can celebrate with Mike Scott on the sidelines. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw that, but to me, that was one of the underrated moments of this whole thing. Joel Embiid getting up from this wrestling match with Carl Anthony Towns 
immediately starting to celebrate with Mike Scott, who looks like a proud parent on the sidelines, while Al Horford, meanwhile, looks like a disappointed parent, like 15 feet away, just like shaking his head, watching it all unfold. Joel Embiid starts like airboxing, gets the Philly crowd riled up on his way out. Carl Anthony Towns' parents, who are in attendance, uh, are like heckling him as he leaves. I think Carl Anthony Towns' mom uh, flipped the bird at Embiid as he was walking out. Just, just an insane amount of content to be taken from that episode. And then, as you mentioned, the real savagery didn't start till both these guys hop on social media. So you had Embiid on Instagram saying that he was raised around lions and a cat pulled on him. Pretty good line. Pretty good line, yeah. Uh, hashtag fight night. Hashtag I ain't no bitch, of course, in reference to Mike Scott. Again, referencing the fact that he's got some serious real estate in Towns' head. Carl Anthony Towns responds by posting a collage of photos of him having Embiid in a headlock and also ending it with Embiid, that famous picture of him crying after the Game 7 loss in Toronto. I believe uh, he commented about Joel Embiid not really being about that life or like being softer, than something along those lines. Embiid then takes to Twitter to go at Towns saying, you know, of course you'd go at me for crying in a second round playoff exit when you haven't even been there before. You've got three wins in the season and you're talking all this crap. Also says that Carl Anthony Towns has been a pussy his whole life and that that's why you know who, which we all know to be Jimmy Butler, treated you like a bitch. Something along those lines. And back and forth, it went. Also, that comment, Joel Embiid left on Carl Anthony Towns' Instagram, and Towns appears to have hidden it. So, I mean, this is essentially some, like, elementary school stuff between two grown-ass men. And not only did Embiid leave that comment, but then I guess he went and searched for it, took a screen cap to show that it, he had written it and that Towns had hidden it, just... To show the rest of the world yeah. on Twitter yeah. what he had written. And, yeah. and like, I, I don't want to glorify this at all, man. Like, I, Can we just say, although, the, the, one of the best parts about all this is after leaving that absolutely savage comment on Twitter, his next tweet was, I'm done trash talking now. Yeah. I mean, how long did he last? Like a week into the season? He said he wasn't going to talk trash anymore? Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't want to be that guy. But I just don't really have time for this stuff. Like, I know it is entertaining and, you know, nobody got seriously hurt. So whatever. But I, I guess I, I sort of uh, identify more with Al Horford in this situation. Uh, just sort of watching from afar and being slightly disappointed. And, and like, whatever. It's, it's fun in games for the most part. But I thought Embiid crossed a line with that Twitter post and that Instagram comment. Like, I'm just not really here for this whole you know, measuring contest and guys trying to emasculate each other. Like it's just, I just, I can't be bothered with that stuff. And I think, you know, with, and beat can be super clever and funny. And like that comment, I didn't think was clever or funny. I thought it was just straight up mean and bordered on cyberbullying. So yeah, I thought he took things a little bit too far, you know, and as much as this was sort of a, an entertaining incident, like I, I don't know, man, that, that just made me a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, look, I I definitely don't glorify it or condone, you know, the 
kind of personal route Embiid took it. Like even he ended that comment by saying, uh, I'm not going to put your business out, but I've got the facts about you. Don't get it twisted. I own you. Like once you start alluding to a guy's personal life and obviously we have no idea what he's talking about. Like that clear. But it doesn't matter what he's talking about. Like no, no, I know what I'm saying. Once you're, once you start alluding to a guy's personal life, you've already taken it too far. Exactly. And so I definitely don't condone it. And you know, I was tweeting about this last night. I would assume that the NBA and probably the Sixers as an organization aren't too happy about the route this has taken and like the language Embiid is now using. You know, this is probably going, almost surely going to result in a multi-game suspension for Embiid, Towns, and maybe even Simmons. And the Sixers obviously aren't going to be happy about that. I think in general, there's a lot of reasons to criticize Joel Embiid right now. And he's not above that. But I will also say, we cannot condone it. And like you said, still admit that it is pretty wildly entertaining and kind of part of what makes the NBA the social media-friendly league it is because you've got dudes hopping on Twitter and Instagram like within a half hour of fighting each other or trying to fight each other on the court and exchanging in this very you know childish-like behavior. Again, it's not right. No, but it's entertaining as hell. Well, yeah, and I think part of the entertainment value in a lot of cases comes from the fact that it is so petty and performative. And I think a lot of the guys in the league just really play it up because they know that it's grist for the content mill and they know it's going to get a lot of engagement. And it's probably fun for them too. But when, like you said, when it gets personal like this, and, you know, even after the fight itself, like, the league's going to take a look at this and decide on suspensions for these guys. And I feel like for whatever Embiid was going to get suspended just for the fight itself, which was maybe, like, two or three games based on precedent, I wonder if they won't tack on a game or two just based on how he handled the situation in the aftermath. Like, shadow boxing and hyping up the crowd and then... I don't know. I mean, maybe they make an example of him and say, like, this isn't the kind of thing that we want to glorify and... And the way that you sought to play up this incident and the way that you carried yourself in the in the wake of it earned you an extra game. Yeah, and, and this is actually something else I was thinking of last night, and I almost want to like reach out to the league and get an answer on it, but I don't think they've ever suspended or like fined anyone. Or maybe they've definitely fined people for like uh, comments critical of officiating on social media, but I can't think of any time the NBA has punished a player for like going after another player on social media. And I was wondering if this might be the example that that actually happens. Like, I, I don't know, you know, if they're worried about setting a precedent or anything like that. But again, like the language and be used and just how personal he got with his attack and kind of making light of it all and sharing it for the world to see, you know, I'm not hoping that the guy gets money taken out of his pockets because of it but I do wonder if the NBA will look at that and say like you know we haven't done this before but we do think this crossed a line that we're just not going to stand for our players standing for on social media and so there is going to be you know an additional game tacked on or an additional x amount of dollars tacked on to your fine because of it yeah I mean I will find out soon and I don't know when this the fines and suspensions do come down whether they will provide that kind of a detailed explanation I feel like they usually do so maybe we'll actually find out, you know, what the process was and whether they did consider the aftermath when they when when they decided on a punishment. But um, 
I, I don't think it would be crazy for them to want to make an example of Embiid in this situation because I think it's all well and good and it's all fun in games until something like this happens where a guy's personal life gets brought into it. And, um, and, and that's the part I just wasn't really down with. And, and I love Embiid. And yeah. I, I love everything that he brings to the game. I think it's great for basketball. I, you know, I don't mind his trash talking at all. I love that he's emotional, you know, uh, whether he's on an upper or a downer, you know, in the downer we saw when, when the Sixers lost on that last second shot to the Raptors, which Cat obviously pointed out in trying to emasculate Embiid. And, you know, maybe he had it coming because he, he tried to go that route. But I don't know. There, there are lines, and I feel like maybe one was crossed in this case. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say to piggyback on your it's all fun and games line is for Joel Embiid, I think it's all fun and games until the weight of unfulfilled expectations starts overshadowing your fun and games. And what I mean by that is Embiid's still in the early portion of his career. He is still kind of this lovable character that for the most part is universally liked other than by guys like Carl Anthony Towns and Hassan Whiteside and their fans. But like, you know, the Sixers don't get to the finals this year or they stumble the next couple of years and, and people start feeling like they're not living up to their expectations every spring and those Philly fans start getting restless and you know the criticism starts coming from all corners of the basketball world about them maybe not getting the job done then I don't think this will be viewed through the same lens over the next couple years because then people will start looking at it not like oh Joel Embiid's this fun guy who brings so much to basketball but maybe win something before you speak right and I don't think he's at that level yet but I also don't think we're far from the tide turning on him in that regard. I mean, look, winning winning cures all, yeah. right? and losing makes everything worse. So, uh, I, I think you know that that could absolutely sway how this incident and how Joel Embiid is viewed, and and that's probably not fair. Like, we should be able to view these incidents in a vacuum. Agreed. But I think you're right in that you know whatever happens with his career and with the Sixers going forward um, will I think have a lot to say about whether. Uh, you know, these sort of antics, if you want to call them that, get viewed in a positive or a negative light. All right, last couple things. Sorry, before we move on from that, do you, what do you think will end up happening with Ben Simmons? Do you think there's any punishment coming for him? Because I, I, think, he, I think he has to get at least one game. You think so? Because he had him in a chokehold. But, you know, they didn't eject him from the game. They, yeah. they reviewed it a couple of times. They said and, that he, and the lead he referee, thought he was playing peacekeeper. The lead referee told uh, the pool reporter after the game that, yeah, they deemed him a peacemaker in the situation, which is why he wasn't ejected. So in light of that, you think it seems like that decision was made, you know, based on the Well, they also asked Simmons about what was going on there after the game, and his response was, I always have my teammates back or something to that effect. So I don't think he didn't solve any favors there. I... I'd be pretty surprised if he gets away from this scot-free. Like, I get that you he can... He was aggressively playing Peacemaker. Exactly. You, you can make the argument that he jumped into that scrum to kind of, like, keep everyone at bay. And he, he is apparently friends with Towns. And maybe he was being like, yeah, calm down, whatever. But at a certain point, it was like, nah, he's got him in a chokehold. And you could see Towns was, like, struggling to get out of it. It's not like Towns was calming down. It was... He escalated the situation, whether he meant to or not. I think there's got to be some sort of punishment for that. Yeah, I guess it's tough to say. I mean, he, you know, Towns is obviously fighting like hell to get free and like get back into the skirmish. So, you know, maybe Simmons just felt like he needed to exert that measure of force to, <laughs> he was already to, to keep him on lying the on top of him. I don't think he had to choke him. Yeah, fair enough. I think that went too far. Anyway, we'll everything to went too see. far, but it's great content. 
What a, just an insane night in sports. I, by the way, like while all this was going on, Game Seven of the World Series yeah. was happening. Well, that, which was just a, like a crazy game in its own right, where the outcome turned on a dime in the yeah. seventh inning. That, it was a crazy sports night. That's a perfect segue because the World Series was played between Houston and Washington, and while all this was going on. The Houston Rockets and Washington Wizards combined for 317 points. In regulation, 159-158 final. James Harden had 59 points. Russell Westbrook had a triple-double. Bradley Beal had 46 points or something like that. I, I don't have much to say about this other than, Jesus, what an entertaining game and an entertaining finish and an absolute offensive spectacle. Yeah, I only watched the fourth quarter, and I tuned into the fourth quarter because I looked at the score and said, what on earth is going on? Uh, and I just figured I needed to watch the end of the game to see what was going on. What was going on was a lot of guys scoring at will, and not a lot of people contesting three-pointers, uh, not a lot of resistance at the point of attack, and not a lot of resistance at the rim. I think you would expect that from Washington, which is a team that doesn't have a whole lot of defensive talent and doesn't have really any hopes of doing anything meaningful this season. But for the Rockets, whose defense we have been concerned about and which we cited as a reason why they probably won't win a title this season, to give up 158 points to the Wizards doesn't bode particularly well. Yeah, I, I And it's coming on the heels of us talking 48 hours ago about how offense was down around the league, yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out why that yeah. might be. I think offense is now back on track by virtue of this game alone. <laughs> yeah, I think that brought the mean offensive rating in the league up yeah. to like the standard that it was at last season. Um, unless you have anything else to add about Rockets-Wizards. The only other thing I wanted to touch on from this insane night in the NBA that got overshadowed by all that insanity is the Sacramento Kings are now 0-5. And they lost at home to the Charlotte Hornets last night. And the, the thing I was going to ask you on the next podcast before we realized the next podcast was going to be today was how close do you think Vivek Ranadive is to making changes there? Because this guy is a master of panic as an owner. Hell, they fired their coach last season and they had the best season the franchise had seen in over a decade. And now you've got Luke Walton in there making a lot of money. They're 0-5. Vladi Divac, if you start looking down his list of transactions, not looking really good right now. The Kings went from this up-and-coming team to back in the doldrums and like things can spiral out of control quickly here. They're 0-5. They just lost to Charlotte, who sucks. And they've got the Jazz next. Then they go on a three-game road trip through New York, Toronto, Atlanta. Maybe they beat the Knicks, but like, I, like we're looking at a situation. Then they come back home. They play Portland, the Lakers, Boston, and Proof Phoenix. Like we are looking at a situation where they could be like one in twelve or something by mid-November, and that is a disaster considering how high the hopes were coming into this season. I don't know what's going to happen because on the one hand, you have Ranadive's impulsiveness, as you mentioned, but on the other hand, you have his you know, curiously loyal attachment to Vladi Divac. And so something's got to give there, I suppose. Like either he rides it out with Divac, who just signed, I think, a four-year extension a couple of months ago. And and the fact that Vivek has notoriously been pretty restless. 
And, and you also have Luke Walton is in the first year of his new contract. So I don't know if he's going to be willing to just eat all of that money for the next three or four years and totally turn this thing over. But it's definitely a really disappointing start for a team that seemed to be moving in the right direction last year. And this was always the worry is that, you know, if things stagnate, does it lead to just a, a whole shakeup and, did the Kings shoot themselves in the foot and interrupt their progress by removing the coach that helped make it possible last season? I mean, I, again, like, Buddy Heald has played really poorly. De'Aaron Fox, to me, has been a massive disappointment so far. So I, it's not like you can really just lay it all at the coach's feet. But also, you know, you want to build something sustainable. You want to build continuity. You want to build a strong culture. And it's hard to do that when when you're changing the coach and it's just a revolving door and especially with all the young players on that team, like you want them to grow together and, and to foster, uh, you know, a sustainably nurturing environment and, and coaching turnover, I think is a way to interrupt that. Think about how bad the Warriors have been and how much we've talked about how bad they've been, right? The blowouts they've endured all that considered to Sacramento Kings net rating is five whole points per 100 possessions worse than the Warriors is right now. The Kings have a league worst minus 16.5 net rating through five games. It is abysmal. And the only other thing I'll say about it is that I do believe that at least one of Divac or Walton will be fired in November. Okay, because, that's, a, that's a prediction. Because I just look at that schedule, look how poorly they've played already, and just imagine that this, you know, it's 0-5 right now, and I, I'm not saying it'll be 0-20, but it'll be like 3-20 or 1-30. It'll just get to like some outrageous record where a lot of owners usually feel they need to make a move, and especially an owner like Ranadive. Well, so you don't think there's any chance that they find a way to turn this thing around? No. Because, no, okay, because sorry. To me, Any chance, I think there's a greater than 0% chance, but given what I've seen through five games and what their upcoming schedule looks like and the fact that they can't even be Charlotte right now, like I, I don't see how they escape November with like even being within sniffing distance of 500. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I just... It's so hard to say because on the one hand... Like, they've been really disappointing so far, and I don't know that there's anywhere for them to go but up. But on the other hand, maybe we overreacted to a, a season in which this whole team collectively played over its head, and some pullback should have been expected, and we should have seen this coming. And also, they're playing without Bagley, who was part of the reason that they had the success they had last year, and part of the reason a lot of people were excited about them this season, because they expected him to take a sophomore leap, and he just hasn't played. Uh, the veterans that they brought in in the offseason haven't done a whole lot for them. Trevor Ariza has not been good. Corey Joseph has been mediocre. Dwayne Dedman, who, you know, a signing that I really liked, has been a zero. Like, I think maybe there's a middle ground there where everybody's level does eventually come up. Uh, they find a little bit of the cohesion they were missing last season, and they trend back towards respectability. But we talk about this all the time. Putting yourself in an 0-5 hole in the Western Conference can be a death knell right off the bat. And they, they got to figure things out and right quick if they want to have any hope of getting back into the playoff mix. They do. Uh, we will figure things out for a next podcast probably sometime early to the middle of next week unless another batshit crazy night in the NBA 
Which I'm sure it will. Yeah, which honestly, with this league, it probably will in the next 24 to 48 hours. But until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.